Attention students, the Jabroni University Network is now in session. Please make your way to class. No. It's not. It's broad daylight out. Welcome to Why Do We Ever Meet. I am one of your hosts, Wes. With me, as always, is my wife. What up? Ashley, how are you, my Fine. dear? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for You're cutting right. me short. I'm fine. Fine. I'm fine. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's, that, that's great for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Anyway, uh, a couple ways you can support the show... First of all, oh, oh. <laughs> get out of the dog's food. Uh, Ashley just scared one of the cats because she eats dog food. Then we wonder why her shit smells. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> oh, my God. A couple ways you can support the show. First of all, rate, review, and subscribe to Why Did We Ever Meet, wherever podcasts are available. So wherever you find your podcasts at, be it, be it uh, the iTunes, the Apple Podcast Store or app or whatever, uh, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, we are there. But if you want to know exactly how to find us, there's a real easy way to do that, isn't there, dear? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> visit <laughs> visit the oh uh, the website oh the yeah. website oh the website for okay. our podcast as well Ooh. as several other podcasts uh, the home the home of why did we ever meet Jabroni U Network so visit www.jabroniu.com where you will find why did we ever meet as well as several other wonderful podcasts like the Draft Pod Biff Radio uh, who last week's episode was great because he had his wife on oh and yeah Margaret is. Uh, no interest, but it was really sweet. It's a really cute episode. Um, they were really fun together. Uh, so the Draft Pod, Biff Radio, Locals Barbershop, Jabroni U Wrestling, uh, Flow and Tell, and I think I got them all. I think that's all of them. Wow. Yeah. So make sure you visit jabroniu.com. And of course, guys, wherever you're getting our show from, please rate, review, subscribe. Give us that five-star Dave Meltzer seal of approval like we put this on in the Tokyo Dome. <laughs> Give us the Okada and Kenny Omega main event star rating. Please, I'm begging you. Now that we've put our business in the front, my love, what do we have to do? Oh, we're going to party in the butt, babe. And we're going to do that with a very special guest this week. So if you're new to this show because of our guest, hello. Welcome to our show. Outside of our interviews, this is the content. So for those of you that are here because of our guest, welcome. We hope you enjoy and we hope you stay because we have tons of other really fun guests coming up. But we're here to talk about this special one in particular. Our guest this week is Andre Gower. 
Uh, fans of uh, fans of the movie The Monster Squad know him as the star of the movie Sean. Mm-hmm. Uh, he played Sean in The Monster Squad, one of the most beloved uh, horror kids, kind of a fantasy movie of sorts too, like yeah. a kids yeah. adventure movie. Uh, in in our opinion, which we discuss in the podcast, one that sort of set the template for many things, like <laughs> like Stranger Things and. Super 8 and mm-hmm. Summer of 84, like very much so. Uh, but Andre was on promoting his documentary, Wolfman's Got Nards. The documentary uh, focuses on the lasting legacy of the Monster Squad and how it came to be. And really, really fun documentary. You guys can find it wherever you stream stuff. And you can also pick up physical copies of it on Blu-ray on Amazon. So um, what do you... She has a... She has a- Oh, the cat. Yeah. Okay. Um, a mouse. A toy mouse. So, yeah. Uh, one of our cats is acting a fool. Always. Um, so, yeah. Uh, just, a, just a super fun episode. A really great conversation. I highly re- recommend all of you when conventions are back. Oh. If you spot him, stop and say hello. He is one of the warmest, most inviting. Kind of a disarming guy. Like Yeah. Uh, you you don't feel tense around him. No, like not he's at just all. right away very warm and inviting. Yeah, and he is absolutely welcome back on the show anytime. There's a really funny moment too where our son who grew up on the Monster Squad uh, or Cash, and for the listeners they know him as Cash. For for those of you if you're new, our son's name is Cash and he's 14 years old. <laughs> uh, he uh, he sort of pops into the interview and his face turned beet red because a childhood hero was <laughs> literally right in front of him saying hello. So. He had um, to. He just left. He yeah, just like, he got so red faced. He and, just bailed. Yes. So, uh, so yeah. So this week's episode is, is all about that. We talk about the documentary. We talk about the Monster Squad and and the legacy that's come with him and and growing up in the movie business. And uh, which just, was wild. I did not know that he was a Hollywood kid. Yeah. Well, Hollywood kid meaning like you know he's been acting. Yeah, yeah. His entire life, but more than anything, like you know he. He's a very grounded dude. There's such a for sure. There's such a stigma still, yeah, uh, for kid actors right. going into adulthood, right? And look, so, he's some not he doesn't have no. It. He doesn't fit nope. that. Not no, even a little bit. No, uh, just uh, like it's what you want. <clears throat> I I honestly think Andre embodies what you want out of a. Out out of meeting a, a childhood star or childhood hero, yeah, somebody that was in one of your favorite movies of all time, this is a this is the like best case scenario is meeting a guy like him. Yeah, I would agree because sure. he's kind, he's grounded, he uh, cares about the thing you care about. Yes, and he's grateful that you care about it. That's yeah. really fucking cool. Yeah. So uh, so yeah. So without further ado, guys. Uh, we thank you, and if you're new to the show, we hope you enjoy this interview with uh, the director of Wolfman's Got Nards, Andre Gower. Okay, so we have a very special guest this week, uh, and I am so excited because we haven't announced this guest was coming on the show, and it's going to be even more exciting when it goes up. Uh, he's an actor, he's a writer, he's a producer, he's a director, uh, and and for a lot of us, he is a 
pinnacle part of our childhood, a part of one of the most beloved and iconic films of my youth and my entire generation's youth. Uh, he has a documentary right now that's out and available called Wolfman's Got Nards that covers the legacy of the film he's also the star of, The Monster Squad. Ladies and gentlemen, we are proud to welcome Andre Gower to the show. Andre, how are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty good after that intro. That was uh, <laughs> that that made me sound fantastic. I'll take it. <laughs> well, I'll I'll do my best to dispel all of that shortly. So that's good. I I can tell you that there are a lot of people that are going to listen to the show that you. I don't think you could dispel that if you if uh, if you tried. Um, the first thing I have to bring up before we go any further is, and if this is a personal thing that I want to address. You have the most fantastic legacy of on-screen dads. I think of any actor in the history of television and film. You know, it's funny you bring that up because just recently someone had mentioned that uh, I was doing another uh, podcast. This is a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? Let, let me write, let me list them out. <laughs> and I wrote a list and I was like, you know what? I've got a pretty badass dad's list. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to name a few. Uh, yeah. I know it, it was probably brought up on that other show. Bert Convy, yeah. Ricky Nelson, Peter Scolari, William Shatner, George C. Scott, for fuck's sake. And if listeners of this, I'm obsessed with George C. Scott. So oh, okay. <laughs> uh, he, that man in my book could do no wrong. And of course, Stephen Macht. Is that how he pronounced it? Yeah. Yeah, your father in the Monster Squad. That is a pedigree of fathers that no one in film and television can touch. I think. Yeah, I'm not. Sh- it's it's if it's touchable, it's pretty up there on the scale. I think so. That's uh, and I'll add one more. Like uh, Richard Mazur is also on that thing, oh, you know, an actor. Oh, so there was a you know an obscure movie of the week I did when I was a. Um, uh, not a wee tyke, but sort of like a medium tyke, uh, an older tyke. Yeah, yeah. I was not, I was not 10 or 11 or something. And I did sure, a movie sure. view of the week and Richard Masser was my father. So add that one to the list, but yeah, you hit the, you hit the good highlights there, which I, is um, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible when you list them out. It's shocking. Like I, I was going through, um, I was going through and looking at, at just, you know, going through and I was like, Oh man, I remember the show like Mr. President. I remembered. And I'm looking through this and I was like, holy cow, he has, his fathers on screen are like unmatched. Like that is a, that's an, it's a weird factoid, but my God, what a, what a great one to have. It's a pretty good, uh, you know, first team kind of all-star ballot there. You know, if you looked at it and you, I mean, just running down the list, it's, you know, some of the, you know, kind of greatest names and faces yeah. that have, oh, yeah. have you know yeah. done stuff and there's a couple that are definitely at the top of that list you know personally for me as well for sure so so starting from there like i mean you started very young uh how like you you were born in la correct you were born and raised out, out i was yeah i'm a i'm one of those rare unicorns i'm a native la person very oh, rare <laughs> <laughs> even though that's weird like we say that because everybody go even people that move to la to do whatever to go oh my god you're from here and i'm like yeah is that really that weird and they go yeah i go 
actually there's millions of us. This is a big city that's been yeah. around for a while. There's a lot of native LA people, but uh, not, it, it just, it strikes everybody so weird because it's such a destination place for yeah. people to, yeah. to move to, uh, especially if it's, you know, you know, centered around entertainment. Yeah. And I think, the, I think the entertainment industry too has changed people's perception of Los Angeles probably. You don't think of people like living there, living. No, they think it's just like, yeah, they think it's like on the board at an airport. It's like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to Fantasy Town. Right, right. <laughs> like right. it's like Candyland. Yeah. It's like it's not a real place. <laughs> <laughs> so, so were you sparked young? At like, it, were you involved in theater? Like, what, what's the tipping point of like, all right, this is what, this is what I like. My parents can see that I like this. Like. How does that, what tips that off? Uh, well, that's kind of, that's kind of two responses there. I'll, I'll, I'll start with a mm-hmm. is, um, but now I forgot what a would be. Um, <laughs> oh, sorry. The, the a answer is the kind of onus of it is my sister uh, is a few years older than I am. And her name is Carlina. And she she and my parents or my parents and she, my sister didn't drive, you know, when she was, you know, five or six, (laughs) they had uh, kind of moved down from central California to LA uh, to specifically get into film and TV with my sister. So she was there and, you know, started to work and and had done quite a bit of, uh, you know, as, as a young tyke. And then uh, ta-da, here I am. Yeah. I, I, I arrive. Um, uh, I, I think the stork got the wrong house, like just knocked, but, you know, <laughs> left the package like a bad Amazon and um, no one ordered, you know, no one ordered this, but they were like, ah, it's a hassle to return it. So <laughs> we'll just keep it, whatever it is. And um, they're like, Hey, I didn't order this. What is that? Let me check my prime account. Um, yeah. Okay. We'll see what turns out. But uh, so I was just always around it, even yeah. from swaddling age. Cause my sister was in it before I was. Okay. And she, like I said, she had worked quite a bit when she was a kid as well. Um, and kind of her biggest thing is, you know, I think it's one of my favorite movies of all time because I saw it constantly when it was on every year. Uh, but she was in the movie, the towering inferno. Oh, so my sister's the little girl that Paul Newman saves in the famous disaster movie, the towering inferno. So that was a neat experience to have this gigantic, you know, worldwide, huge movie. Uh, in, in, I was on that set, but like I said, I I was in, yeah diapers um i think some other cast was in diapers as well but they uh, <laughs> they um I, so i was just always around it and i think it was just i was sort of next uh you asked like oh i like this and your parent like and on here's the b answer is when you're five and you're starting in this industry you're not really the one that goes hey let's do this yeah you know it's really what it is is since i kind of had the door opened and the in the gate swung open because of my sister mm-hmm. uh it i was just sort of kind of next yeah and but then really where the kind of the decision happens is you you may not be the instigator but you you keep swimming if you if if it's something that you take to sure. and some people don't some you know some kids do i think i just uh was open to it and was comfortable with it that's the main thing with kids especially young young kids 5 6 uh they have to be comfortable in what they're doing they have to understand what's going on even though the 
they're in a fake world, like a make-believe world. Mm-hmm. But that's also weird when you're five because the real world isn't real to you yet either. Yeah, you yeah. haven't really figured out what you know what everything's going on. So uh, you know, some kids don't know what's going on and they just mimic or parrot some things, and other kids kind of understand it. Apparently, I just uh, I was comfortable enough with it to you know kind of you know swim like a duck in water i think and just went from there so i almost don't really know what it's like to not be in that world except yeah. for yeah. you know growing up and growing up in this business in different stages of your you know childhood years uh i it, that wasn't my only existence as well i had a very balanced life of what you know some people call it the normal world or the real world. There's nothing abnormal or fake about growing up in the entertainment industry. It's just an added kind of parallel world uh, to your non-industry world. And it was, it was a very, you know, uh, uh, you know, cognizant type of thing. And that, uh, you know, that I was uh, involved and active and, and had an, uh, access to that non-industry world as well. Yeah. And I, I find it interesting too, when people, I, I think because it's, you have, you know, what people consider the the flyover states, but the middle of the country um, didn't have the, have the same, that same uh, saturation of the entertainment industry. And they don't think of it as like, people work in that industry. There are union jobs. There are, there's so many levels of it that are so similar to industries throughout the rest of the country that all people think of is the big the, the, you know, the bright lights of it and don't think of the nuts and bolts. And as a kid, it's, it's, an, you're just seeing it as, I, were, were you seeing it as a job? I shouldn't say, I was going to say, you see, but. You know, it's interesting because uh, I, I mean, I, I don't, you know, it's, you can speculate on what you thought at the time yeah, or sure. what you kind of remember. And that perspective always changes as you go through. And it depends on kind of what your role is not your role, role on camera, but your role in your family or in your kind of bubble. Um, It's, I I think I just enjoyed it. I knew it was something that you did that, you know, was a profession that you got paid to do. And if you were lucky, uh, you got to do it more than once. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, at the time, it was a unique time to come up in that industry because, you know, obviously, you know, the latter half of the 70s and then all through the 80s, you know, roles for kids or content about kids or storylines that had kids as not just a side thought or the offspring of the main characters was starting to kind of grow and was starting to become a thing. And this is even before, obviously before this is before cable, definitely before the internet, uh, but before Disney and Nickelodeon and ABC family, things like that, uh, where it was all geared towards kids, mm-hmm. you started to see kind of a little more expansion of things geared towards kids. And obviously, look, it's it's all a, it's a market economy and it's all consumerism, you know. And so, the, you know, I think what the brands and the ad agencies and the media companies understood was that parents spend money on kids stuff. And so I think, you know, that drove action figures, that drove trading cards, that drove, you know, books. And, and and that was supplemented, not just by cartoons on Saturday mornings, it was programming and TV shows and, uh, and then some movies. So I think you got, you started getting into the eighties and you had, you know, stuff geared towards kids, Mm 
mm-hmm. as kids adventure films or kids fantasy films or you know not everything was just adult oriented and to see now what the market how that market has shifted where disney disney is you know owns so much uh ip and it's it's so i, I don't want to say it's it's also child or kid geared but that market now, if I, when I think about how it was when I was a kid and, and seeing the vast difference in, in media mm. now and how it, how, it is, how it is singularly geared towards, we know that audience is, is what we're aiming for. No doubt. And that's really what Disney, I mean, really kind of was maybe all about from the Walt days yeah. when he built the parks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then they really started taking it, you know, to another level. And look, make no mistake about it. Disney doesn't acquire something because they want, they think it's cool. They they realize that it's an opportunity to license something that they can sell a bar of soap in the shape of that character. Yes. You know, that's, yeah. that's really all it is. Yeah. yeah. And what's genius about, uh, you know, selling a bar of soap is that you use the soap and it disappears and you have to buy it again. <laughs> so right. it's like, it's, it's not a permanent thing. So, uh, you know, it's like, Hey, let's make Mickey Mouse shaped ice. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh. <laughs> so it's, um, they certainly, I think, probably started it, uh, yeah. and then damn, damn sure perfected it, oh, and have still, and have still, it, it's no different. They're just doing what they've always done, and that's their mo. But that's when adults like of our age, you know, feel like we have ownership in in the fandom of maybe an IP like yeah. Star Wars or something, yeah. and get pissed at what they're doing. It's like, hey man, this isn't made for you. <laughs> this is not for you, man. Uh, you can think the movies suck, uh, and the characters are dumb. But you know what? They don't care. <laughs> oh, no, no. I, I, it is a, it's fascinating to watch people latch on. And, it, you know, and we're, we're going to talk about something similar with the Monster Squad, but we all latch on to something out of nostalgia. Nostalgia drives so much in the market. It does and, now, yes. And, yeah. and, and there's so many, that gatekeeper thing, because there's still so many sacred cows the the companies that are behind this it's the same way with horror fans that are constantly mad about remakes the studio doesn't give a shit about your favorite movie <laughs> no no they they want the new audience and new tickets and you know you just you you have to take it and move on and from from one perspective you don't like to get you know feel uh dismissed in that regard but the other thing you have to understand how it works and you shouldn't really care that much. you really shouldn't care that much you yeah. can like something and love it but you like you, you know it, it really shouldn't ruin your world uh it can piss you off for an afternoon or two but uh, be like oh that sucks man but yeah. you know it really shouldn't be something that's like well you know what i'm just gonna sell the house and quit my job this is, <laughs> this is ridiculous uh, <laughs> but uh yeah it was it was certainly an interesting time to come up in that to see sort of that growth now it's just ridiculous i mean it's yeah. like uh, I mean, Disney was powerful back then. <laughs> now, oh my God. Now it's literally the Thanos of entertainment. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is it so having been a part of that? I mean, at the time you didn't know that, but I, you know, the 80, that time in the 80s, I do think influenced media and media consumption from that point on. I think, I think that that's really driven where things have gone since then. That, that at that time we were seeing like, Oh, this whole thing's changing. Whether it was something like the monster squad that has this lasting legacy or something like Mac and me, 
that has a legacy for its own different reasons. Yeah. But it was, I think that ushered in where we're at now. It feels like it anyway. Oh, no doubt. I think it was not only, it, it was, it was less of a transition period to the next epoch of yeah. what we did um, you know, uh, as Western society or, you know, what, you know, globally really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was more of a, it was the end of the previous era and a very just robust start yeah. to the, to the, to the new era. And then that new era, you know, just took off with that foundation. It was, it was, there was so much going on in entertainment and that includes music and you know tv and uh you know home video and you know cinemas and the, you know the studio system and and all that was there was such a, a seminal uh, or just important shifting time of just if you just took the 80s by itself and the impact that it had it was absolutely incredible and it all has to do with uh uh you know uh economies across the world especially economies in the US it has to do and a lot to do with technology sure yeah. Now, since we since I've brought it up three times, Monst, Mon, the Monster Squad is kind of where this whole thing kicks off for you in a way. I mean, this is it's the thing that now is I, I see it as is it's impacting your adult life. I mean, it's carried all of these years over. So the that experience of being a part of something that is now iconic and uh and something that has affected more than one generation uh my son who just tried to sneak through uh he you know he's had the movie passed down to him what what is that like now for you of you want to say hi yeah you, yeah <laughs> Hello, I, it, I'm glad you brought it up and you came back because I was going to make sure that you knew a, a, a being or something walked behind you on yeah. camera there. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that wasn't like watching, you know, the sequel to Host or something. What's your son too? That's that our son Cash. He's, he. Are you nervous a little? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are you? What for? Like, no, Cash, come on back, man. Come on back. Come on back. What? So, you can't make you can't make that interest in the entrance and then leave. Come on. Red. So first time you saw Monster Squad five? Yeah. Probably. probably five or six. Okay. How many times do you think you've seen it? A billion. I mean billion. he used to just he'd fall asleep with it. He'd put it on in bed and just fall asleep to it night after night after night. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's yeah. You've probably heard that story a million times. Uh I I have, but you know, it's, it's different and individual to everybody that says it because it's theirs or it's caches or it's, you know, siblings or cousins or whatnot. But that's, what's interesting about, you know, like you, you know, you originally started asking about, we'll go back to your original monster squad question, you know, caches interest makes it more interesting. Uh, There's another, okay. There's another ghost. Roxy who also, who also has grown up on monster squad and is still on it. That's Sean from monster squad. What? What? (laughs) She's like, no, it's not. Sean's like some dorky young kid. Who's this scruffy old dude? Uh, That's me. Hey, hey, Roxy. Uh, Yeah. So here's what's interesting about Monster Squad. And then we can kind of, you know, circle back to the origin, you know, to to, uh, if we ever get to answer your actual questions. Like I said, I go off. I go off on tangents. Um, 
but that's what's interesting about monster squad and this is a much you know deeper and longer conversation um but that it it was a movie that came out in 87 you know kind of very uh representative of its time of the things that we're speaking of kind of kids adventure movies but it was a little bit different and for some reason this movie impacted and connected with people that saw it Mm -hmm. that despite the fact that it failed in the box office for one or two or three reasons, which is a whole other conversation. Sure. Uh, these people like yourself uh, kept it as theirs for a long time and have now passed it down. And you would expect most stuff as us in our age, showing it to our, our kids generation, yep. they're going to scruff it off or brush it off or laugh or think it's lame or old, or it doesn't make any sense because it doesn't have an app or, you know, but for some reason, the Monster Squad actually still works. Doesn't matter what generation it is. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that over the last 10, 15 years. I've discussed it. You know, parents like you have, have, have said the same thing. And so you, you start looking into that. And we look into a little of that, of you know, dynamic in the documentary that there's yeah. a whole second generation. But the discussion of it's, you know, very interesting of why. And I think really what it is is because... Um, not only like we were talking about the the era, the eighties were the ending of era one of cinema and storytelling and, and, and the start of the new, uh, it was a little bit of a transition. Monster Squad as a story, actually, if you break it down, is sort of the same thing. It's a blending of the old and the new. It's the classic, you know, hundred year old story monsters, you know, by that time, they're Dracula yeah. and Frankenstein. Yeah. And we've seen them for decades and it was sort of an introduction to them because they were fading away now look how popular they are <laughs> it's yeah, like you, yeah. you didn't see a lot of it you saw some but not a lot it was a dying kind of thing because we had jason and freddie yeah, and michael yeah, myers well, yeah and slasher yeah. movies and 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 revenge movies and slumber party massacres yeah. and things like that but then now we brought the element of a mo- of a creature or a monster in mm-hmm. now you're talking about battling kids which is a new thing but even the story it has archetypes it's got family issues. It's got characters that people can relate to. That's the big thing. The first thing that I noticed about fandom and Monster Squad is that these fans connected with either the squad as a whole or with an individual character. Yeah. They always they may have related to one, but wanted to be a different one, just like we all do when we're growing up. Yeah. And yes. they really connected with this movie that 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 hit home to them. Uh, in their guts and in their brains for some reason, whether they understood it or not. Mm-hmm. But these archetypes they they have legs they travel and they can go into the next generation because you know carl young came up with it at the turn of the last century you know so it's you know these archetypes in the human condition i think fred and shane kind of tapped into that you know kind of unbeknownst to them probably when they were just writing a fun script uh that they really hit on these kind of you know uh archetypal dynamics that will move forward uh, and have discussions. And th- that's what's interesting about a, a multi-generational fandom now. Uh, and it's not just like, oh, I've got a cool kid that loves old movies. <laughs> yeah. Because I grew up in the 80s and I like movies from the 50s. Mm-hmm. But a lot of kids wouldn't even, wa- you know, they're like, I'm not watching a black and white movie. What am I do that? I was like, you're not going to watch Rebel Without a Cause? Right. Like, you're not going to watch you know, to Helen back. Like, what is your, what is your major malfunction? Uh, you're not going to watch Castle Blanc. I'm not even limiting Casablanca or something. Uh, but I enjoyed those even as a kid. Um, yeah. But I, I think it's interesting. Uh, I don't know if it's singular to Monster Squad, but I think Monster Squad is uh, representative of that unique example. 
Um, and being a part of that has now, like you said, affected my adult life, even though it was something I did as a kid, mm-hmm. more so than anything else that I had done. Cause my resume is not small. It's not, oh. you know, tiny either. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's just filled out differently than if you compare and contrast to other contemporaries of mine. Yeah. Uh, but this is definitely the thing that people know, the thing that they're most attached to, um, f- you know, for a couple of different reasons. And that's one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, I, I feel like too, what one thing that's interesting is there's a monster squad in its, in its fandom is different than some of these other IPs we've, you know, we've brought up like a star Wars. I think there is a difference in that there's some, there's connective tissue to reality uh, in, in a sense, like yes, Dracula and the Wolfman and all these monsters are in it, but those kids the monster squad feels real to us because we can connect to Sean and Rudy and Horace. Those kids feel real to us. And I think that's what, for me, at least that's what has separated monster squad from star Wars or star Trek or, or any of that other stuff. Because when I was watching you as a kid, I, I could watch Sean and go, Oh man. Yeah. Yes. Like, and then to look, looking at the clubhouse and thinking about looking through Fangoria or Deep Red and like that, those were very real characters. And I think that's what for me, and I'm speaking, I'm going to speak for my generation, but I feel like that's the delineating factor between Monster Squad and so many other things that have these legacies with kids is you, you're those characters, you guys were 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 tangible real people that we felt like we knew and it made you it it made us want to be you want to be friends with you i didn't want to be friends with luke skywalker you know he was a it was like larger than life you guys feel real and i think that makes it a little more special yeah i think move you know i mean we're we're talking about you know ultimate type titles and stories like star wars but sure. that's more that's more of a mythology yeah and something like Monster Squad or other movies that are maybe are a little more grounded or visceral that you can relate to, even though this is a fantastical story of, mm-hmm. you know, monsters and supernatural beings and stuff like that. Right. Uh, but it's it's grounded as, you know, it felt like it could be real and the adventure was attainable. Yes. And yeah. uh, that's that's certainly something that has been, you know, brought up and we've had, you know, fun you know, kind of yeah. investigating and analyzing that over the years. And, you know, if you had gotten in, if we were making a, a longer doc or a different documentary, uh, we could have interrogated exactly that type of thing even deeper. Yeah. Um, you know, I almost wish we had a little bit and gotten, you know, a little more, you know, deep dive into it. And, but th- that's what these discussions are for. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. the, the, I, I, what I like about the documentary is that it's a, it's, it's an, it's not a puff piece whatsoever. Huh. And, but it's, it's not about the movie and it's not about us. Yeah. Uh, it's about, you know, how something like a movie can connect and impact people either as kids and whatever they saw and how it can, can, can stick with them for decades mm-hmm. and generations yeah. all told through the lens of monster squad fans. And it was important that we were turning the lens around on the people uh, that were the only reason we're talking about this movie 20, 25 and 30 years later is you guys and you know there we don't i mean we're we're sitting there getting all of the celebration at an appearance or a convention or something but 
you have to realize and appreciate and respect the opportunity that this movie was dead and buried yes. and no, yep. no one, no one was going to bring it up. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, I don't know how this movie resurrected from the dead. And then what I've realized is that it was never dead. No, it was lingering around in people that just didn't know where it was for a while. And then they found each other and it blew up in 2007, yeah. uh, 2006 and 2007. So that was an interesting story. And hearing, you know, we always ask, you know, what was the, you know, the, the kind of, you know, reason that you came up with an idea or thought you should make a documentary. And it was hearing those stories about how these fans connected with this movie yeah. and how it impacted them as kids or, and how it still impacts them, impacts them as adults. Mm-hmm. And those stories didn't wane or die off. I kept hearing them. And even though some of them sounded familiar and they were, and sometimes maybe repetitive, but they were all different and important and singular to everybody that said it. And I realized that there was something different here in fandom, like you hit on a little while ago. And that's what I really keyed on. I said, there's a, there's a story here that I'm, that I'm observing. Mm -hmm. I I don't just think it's there. I'm physically observing this dynamic. And I think those stories are a story. And that's really what the framework of the documentary was, was to be about. And I, because that is kind of where I want to take the, the, this conversation um, to give you, you know, from our perspective, like, and like you said, the world had thought like seemingly the movie had disappeared and it never did disappear because there were plenty of us that still, you know, we were all still talking about it. I, we had, I remember when we first uh, our first apartment, we had year, a million years ago, um, <laughs> The only way we could get a hold of Monster Squad was that was going to a horror movie convention and buying a bootleg DVD, right? Bootleg VHS. That was the only format that you could get it on, and it was it was this. And I know it does come up in the doc. It was this this weird holy grail of like <laughs> like you know, let's go check the bootleggers tables, see if they've got Monster Squad. And I would be looking for Ken Russell's The Devils and Monster Squad, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's i i remember it bubbling back up where it's like no everybody's looking for the monster squad but that's how i first saw it was yeah she never saw it i had never in that era that's what i was going to ask with ashley i was like you're you're like you're you're first i was going to ask i always ask everybody when where and when they first saw it and so wes you saw it on vhs from your local video store on hbo or at the theater yes uh vhs tape um my we rented it um my brother and i were like dead set on it um <laughs> set up the two vcrs made a copy of it right yeah put we, the tape over the insert yeah, yeah right. and we watched it over and oh and then when it was on hbo it's like great we'll make a new copy of it right we watched it our my mom i bet you at their house my mother still has a vhs tape with monster squad and little monsters on it i promise <laughs> you Right. That's on, that's on a so, VHS tape. Probably. And so, Ashley, your first was when I was entree into it was during this kind of yeah. dead period. Yeah. Yep. I was a very sheltered child. <laughs> I was not allowed to see anything. Well, so, a yeah. lot of us shouldn't, you know. It's like, it's right. like we get like, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like seeing it, I was like, why was I never allowed to watch this? Like, it seems so silly. Yeah. Because it's just a fun, you know, it's, it's just a fun movie. But yeah, I never, I never saw it until I was an adult. 
Well, I think Ashley hit on one of the two or three reasons why the movie did not succeed in the box office is because there you're saying, why didn't I see this? And the reason of that is there was, there was very, uh, uh, unique but yet contradictory kind of marketing campaigns leading up to the release of this movie and so parents were like nope and kids were like huh and and then some were like i gotta see that uh and then i mean well you know the elephant in the room about monster squad you know not succeeding in the box office uh had nothing to do with the enjoyment of the film when kids saw it it was the fact that back in this era uh, is you had about 48 hours or maybe 72 hours uh, and, that, and they were the first 48 hours or 72 hours that deemed your movie a success or not. Oh. And if some, if there was a certain bar hit that was set by some studio exec or a theater chain and you got to stay in for another weekend yeah. and, then, and then you could get word of mouth or add more marketing and say, hey, this movie hit. But if you don't hit that mark on 48 hours, you're dead, you're gone, you're out because they don't have time and monster squad suffered because of that in the box office, because of those marketing campaigns that were all contradictory. I think because of the PG 13 rating that it got, parents weren't going to allow their kids to go. Uh, But the kids that did go went, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, either got driven to the mall or the theater by their parents and then went to school on Monday and went, Oh my God, Ashley, you've got to come see this movie. So come with me on Saturday. And so you go back to the mall on Saturday to see it and it's gone. Right. Because it didn't Uh-oh. it didn't hit that bar. So you didn't get a chance or that, you know, that other kid in the uh-huh. cul-de-sac or in the schoolyard didn't get a chance. And that was really it's a combination of 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 things that really hit it negatively. Mm-hmm. And what what year did it come out? It August of 87. Oh, okay. So I was still, I was young. Yeah. And so I, I would have. Yeah, no. I well, that, w- that was the other thing. It's uh, uh not only the rating, not only the kind of marketing campaigns that it had, right. um, you know, one of them was the wanted poster type thing, which made no sense. Cause it was sort of like a, it would be kind of genius today if there was a QR code or a call to action, right. like, cause all it said was wanted in the mugshots of monsters. Yeah. Okay. And like most of the posters didn't say like coming to a theater. Like, it was like, we don't know what this is. <laughs> it was kind of genius, but 20 years too early. Yeah. Okay. Uh but also the fact that it it looked like a movie that the older teenagers were like, this is too kid oriented for me. I'm 15. I'm too cool. Okay. Right. So they went and saw The Lost Boys, which opened two weeks prior. Oh. <clears throat> and then the younger kids were like, this is way too scary and dark for me. Yeah. And I don't want to go. And my parents won't let me go because it was PG 13. So there was that small middle window of an audience that is now a billion dollar audience. Yes. Called tweens. Yep. Uh And I I really think we made the first tween movie. (laughs) You absolutely. Uh, And it uh, had, had, I always joke, and I'm sure if any of your listeners have heard me gab about this before, they're going to go, Oh, here comes the, uh, the joke. I always say had, that been a known quantity back then. Yeah. Uh, we probably just prior to recording with you, we would have just wrapped on monster squad 11 breaking dawn. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Absolutely. that's the, that's yep. my tween joke, but they didn't know that was a thing back then No. because of, I think also going back to something we had mentioned before, this was a start of a new era where kids oriented stories and programs were fairly new and they didn't really know 
had to do it. And what's yeah. interesting is where Monster Squad stands apart. Look, we've got yeah. a bunch of kids' adventure movies in the 80s. Yeah. Some are campy, some are sci-fi, some are fun, some are uh, fantastical and unrealistic. Some are just romps through the neighborhood. Others are dark and scary. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're all written by different types of people. Yeah. I think one thing that made Monster Squad connect with kids at the time, because Wes, like you said, it was real. And I, oh. we wanted to go on the adventure is it was written by two guys that weren't that much older than we were. Yeah. And most other studio movies that get made are written by 35, 45, 50 year old guys that are like, what are the kids laughing at these days? You know, oh, back in my day, I said, gee, Willikers and my cousin went crazy. Let's put that in the script. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where, you know, kid content uh, was forced or campy. That's where camp comes in. Yeah. And um, yeah. And and that that happens a lot with movies of that time. And then you go, oh, let's glue wrote them. You're like, oh, this guy had been writing studio movies for 30 years by now. Yeah, yeah. And Fred and Shane were in college at this time. Yeah, that that's the part that I think and I'm glad you brought that up because until I watched the documentary, mm-hmm. I don't think I'd ever put that together how young those guys were when they were <laughs> writing those screenplays. Yeah. And hearing kind of hearing those guys tell the story, you know, the story it, just within the, the setting of the documentary, I had to sit back and go, holy shit, there wasn't much of a gap between these guys that were writing it and these kids that are starring in this movie. Like they understood as yeah. much as they could at that age. They still under, they got you guys. They understood who yeah. the who these characters were and how you guys could play these characters. And that's why none of it's really kind of forced or campy. And, right. you know, it, it, it kind of connect cause it's just basic and, and, and comes yeah. across as real, yes. you know, whether that's the words on the page, which help or the, you know, the, 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 the delivery of those words by the performers. Um, because that's all we were. We didn't invent, we didn't invent kids on film. Like we were kids on film. Yeah. So we just were kids and yeah. how we would interact with other kids. And that's what, you know, just kind of made it kind of naturally smooth. Yeah. Uh, but you know, no one understood that until two, three decades later that, well, that was a thing that actually made this land. Yes. Yeah. What do you, how do you think, what was Fred's direction? Like what got those, do you think that that connectivity between this is a younger director and a younger cast. And there was that ability to connect. How did he get such real performances? Cause this, you guys never feel like, Oh, these are actors playing roles. You felt like legit kids who are a real monster squad. And we have to, you know, we've got to save everyone. How, how did he get those performances? I, I think it's, I think it's two things really. I think one, it was uh, a combination of having the right kids in the right, places yeah um which was you know just smart slash lucky casting yeah um which which transcended and from casting to actually performing because sometimes that doesn't it's not the same thing especially with kids uh because kids are difficult to you know maintain you never know what you're going to get and i think everybody you know in this in this film that was a kid in the movie was spot on what was needed for their role um but the second and almost probably more important thing is that kind of positioning of Fred as not much older than let's say Ryan and myself, Ryan's a you know year older than I am. And I was the next oldest. And I think Robbie and I are the same age and, you know, we weren't super new, uh, you know, of the cast, I had done more jobs. Robbie had worked a lot. Ryan had started a couple years before that. 
was able to, you know, handle himself because he's a performer. He was a musician. He was on Kids Inc. for a couple of seasons before Monster Squad. And, um, it, it, but then you get something like Ashley Bank, who's five years old and looks like she's been doing it for 20 years. Yeah. Um, you know, in this movie. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, she's the most solid kind of continuous character in the whole thing because <laughs> her thing doesn't change. She's just a badass. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and we'll call you out on your shit anytime you want. <laughs> uh, and then she saves the world. I mean, it's, I think it's interesting also uh, for a, a movie in 1987, uh, we're uh, the hero of our movie is the five-year-old girl. Absolutely. And I don't think, uh, I don't think a lot, I don't think that was missed by a lot of our young girl fans they're like whoa yeah <laughs> uh, you know because we talked to them today it was like no you don't understand like phoebe was my phoebe is still my hero and i'm 40 <laughs> you know it's like phoebe is my hero and yeah. i was like that's not something you saw a lot back then nope. um the but i think it was you know the the second half of the answer is because fred was in that position not much older than us and he you know it, he related to us in a way that he could because it wasn't this multi-generational gap. Mm-hmm. He was also just, you know, an enthusiastic, you know, kind of movie and TV, yeah. you know, nerd, yeah. like we all, like yeah. we all were and had the enthusiasm to relate to us, but also know what he wanted to get out of it. And then he could turn around and manage kind of a, you know, try to manage a set of, of making a movie, which is a hard thing to do, but we never saw that. We saw what Fred was in front of us as sort of this buffer of this giant machine. Yes. So he was really kind of the anchor, but besides each other as the squad, he was sure. our anchor point to the machine. And we were, I think, an anchor to each other. Yeah. And, and, and Fred was very kind of important in that role. Cause he's, he's also answering like, in addition to, um, in addition to you guys, you know, having to maintain children on a set, which isn't easy to do, Like you know, we've, as you've brought up, he's answering to a studio, like, <laughs> and he's a young director. That's a lot that's a lot on his shoulders. Oh, it's a, it's a massive amount of on your shoulders. And, you know, he mentions it a little bit in the documentary about, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the, you know, the first couple of weeks of production yeah. and uh, almost getting fired from the, yeah. from the, from yeah. the job. Um, and, you know, I think it was a, it was also, not only was it a learning experience for us as kid performers, but it was a learning experience for someone like Fred who was just out of college had directed a movie right. uh, was directing another movie that was probably five times the budget of his first movie. Yeah. Um, and, or, or no, I don't know what creeps budget was. It wasn't as high as monster squad. Cause we had a lot of effects and a lot and a longer shoot, but um, yeah. you know, it's uh, and, and it was a learning experience for him too, but uh, you know, his relationship to up as, as the cast that never really kind of wavered. And it was uh, you know, he made sure that he was our, kind of buoy uh you know and and pier that we you know would always be we could swim out into the water Mm -hmm. but we always know like he he was the anchor point i guess that you know we connected to you know like i said in the holder you know broader machine aspect of making a giant movie (laughs) what so what actually is the jumping off point for you to go i have to make it we have to make a documentary like this has to be documented we have to the this fan base has existed Without the help of any movie studio or like <laughs> this fan base has endured, this legacy of this movie has endured. What what is the 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 point where you say this this has to be a documentary? We have to document this. Uh, that was some point in two thousand sixteen. Okay, 
And I had, you know, because we had spent 10 years yeah, that we thought would only last a year of appearances and conventions. And we thought this fan base kind of, you know, kind of flash in the pan and would die out. And not only did it not die out, it didn't even stay level. It just kept growing and growing and getting deeper and bigger (laughs) uh, and getting more response. And then social media and, you know, because it started with the Internet in 2006 at that original Alamo Draft House cast reunion screening, which yes. is the one of we wouldn't be sitting here talking about any of this if that if that, happened, happened, no. if that didn't <laughs> happen. So that had to happen. And then we headlined a, a convention, you know, in the next year, and then the DVD comes out. Yes. You know, Lionsgate realizes they have this this title, they put it out and they sell a ton of, you know, a, a 20th anniversary DVD. So fast forward 10 years from that, and we've been going to multiple conventions a year, multiple screenings a year film festivals where they're celebrating and giving, you know, awards to monster squad stuff. Yeah. And I, to, you know, to kind of touch back on me realizing and talking about this dynamic with Ryan and Ashley and, and, and others that this fandoms, there's something different here and, and realizing that personal connection that these fans have with this movie. I thought that that was a story. And honestly, my original concept of what we were going to do, like I said, was 2016, uh, Ryan and I, I was, uh, I, I had just kind of started uh, my company, Fitter Piper. I had a couple of projects. I had just moved back to LA a couple of years before that to work on a TV project, which I was, you know, doing two different times. Ironically, at Lionsgate, it didn't happen. Uh, but in the same time, I pitched in another show to Nerdist, which was on their chan- uh, their new digital channel, which Ryan and I, I developed it where Ryan and I were the co-hosts and we kind of showcased short films and, and interviewed short filmmakers. And that, that could have grown into a nice big thing uh, if that channel hadn't yeah. died. Uh, but Ryan and I had a podcast uh, for about a year at that time. And, you know, back in the bad old days when no, you know, when, when, when everybody's like, let's do a podcast. Yeah. Uh, now, now it was like a weird thing. It's like, oh my God, can you start a podcast? It's like, <laughs> and everybody, everybody's now like, dude, I do two by the time I have coffee in the morning. I like, I, I run two different ones about the economy and one's about, uh, you know, uh, robot movies. Um, but, uh, which is fun because it's a great way to communicate. Yeah. Uh, and I realized that we were coming up on the 30th anniversary year. I knew there was going to be three or four, you know, big events that we were going to go to. Um, And my first thought was, I said, you know, I, 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 you know, bounced it off, you know, like Ryan and, 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 and my wife. And Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, we're coming up with the anniversary year. There's this unique thing. We know way too many people with gear. Like, why don't I go buy, a used, a used, you know, 4k camera, you Uh and I take it on the road. We'll get some like fan on the street type of interaction. uh, And then we'll come home to LA. And uh, we, we know at least four or five huge monster Squad fans that live in the LA area. Let's invite them somewhere, sit them down, put them in a chair. We'll put them on camera, ask them to tell their story of why they like this movie and why it's endured for so long. And then we'll get one of our filmmaker buddies to, you know, edit it for, you know, beer or something yeah, and uh, or free if we can get, you know, <laughs> do it for free and just make some, you know, 40, 40 minute, 35 minute, yeah. you know, kind of shitty gritty type of thing. And we were going to put it on our, on our, on our website for like a dollar or something. Right. Um, I experimented with that. I said, I brought, yeah. I brought people, I brought a couple people with their gear to a convention that Ryan and I were appearing at. We got some footage. Uh, it came back and I was like, no, 
<laughs> said, this is not uh no uh let's 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 put this on the let's think about this for a little bit yeah and but i was i was like how much you know how much time would this take how much money would it take and i whittled it way down you know to like almost nothing sure and you know and then tried this experiment at this convention and just it just didn't pop like it should and then ironically right at the time that tv show project you know had its second iteration uh at the studio and then i i just pitched and sold uh, that hosted show. So we yeah. were going into contracts at that time. So the doc kind of took a backseat for a couple months and what really made it all happen. So my original idea was sort of just waiting on the back burner or, or yeah. you know, it might've been put in the drawer by that time. Mm-hmm. And we were coming into the new year, it was just 17. And I had a lunch planned with a friend of mine that worked at Pilgrim Studios. Uh, which is a big kind of reality show production house. And uh, they haven't, uh, you know, learn later, they have a division in the company that was making in-house kind of developed type of things. Sure. But I'm just picking up, you know, one of my oldest friends, cause she works there as a, as a post supervisor and her name is Jen off and we're in my car. Like she comes down, hops in and she's like, Hey, remember um, I told you that there's a couple of monster squad fans that, that work on my floor. And I was like, yeah. She goes, well, that's one of them right there unloading that truck. And I said, oh, so I put the car in park and I said, let's go say hi. And so she's like, really? I said, yeah, let's go say hi. So we jump out and this kid's name's Anthony. Uh, and he's, he ends up working on the dock as, 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 part, you know, as a little bit part of their production, which is, you know, awesome. But uh, he's unloading like this, you know, gear out of a, out of a van or something. And uh, she says, Anthony, come on over here. And he's like, Oh man, what's going on? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm like, Andre, it's good to meet you. He's like, Holy cow, I'm a huge monster squad fan. I was like, that's awesome. And that little delay of getting out of the car to meet Anthony. Yeah. Gave us this very sliding doors, synchronistic serendipity type 90 seconds Absolutely. for three other guys to walk out of the door and oh, come down the sidewalk. That's great. And it was Henry McComas, uh, Aaron Kunkel and Wes Caldwell. And if you watch credits or watch the doc, these are the, yeah. the three main guys on the production team that, that made the documentary. And Wes had been to an event. They, they all recognized who Jen was talking to on the sidewalk and just came over to hang out. So now I meet these guys. Henry asked me, you know, what am I doing? And I was like, well, we're getting ready to go get tacos. <laughs> but uh, he's like, no, I mean, like, what are you doing? And I told him about the TV. It all revolves around kind of this original TV concept that I've been working on for a couple of years. I actually shot a spec pilot for it. And, oh. you know, it's nine and a half minutes long. I spent a ton of money on it. And uh, it, it's great. And I sold the show. Like the first place I went to, I sold the show. Still haven't made this show yet. Um, but <laughs> I, I tell him about that. And Pilgrim happens to be, you know, uh, majority owned by Lionsgate at this time he's like look we can help with like if you get that show developed I I want we want to be your production outfit for that show so you know we can bring that soup to nuts I was like wow that's actually interesting we should chat about that uh so you know he threw a card at me uh uh, and um you said well let's talk and he's like what else I say well I'm also working on this other thing that I just sold to Nerdist and then I've got this uh uh, you know, this documentary concept uh, about Monster Squad and, you know, coming up the 30th anniversary year. And he said, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something I want to talk about. Yeah, can we go to lunch? And so long story short, he went to lunch like two days later. And they, uh, you know, he basically said, I think this is something that we can bring to our execs. Um, yeah. This is not something you should 
you know, eke out by yourself. Cause you know, you told me about your kind of original thought. Uh, this is something that our division in this, in this company that we actually work in and run, uh, that's what we're looking to do. And I think there's an angle here, like you're really actually trying to find yeah. and we can bring, you know, something to that. And I was like, uh, let's have another lunch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so very quickly we kind of framed out what we thought it could be, what it should be. Um, yeah. Got, got an okay from the executives to have a meeting with them. It went past them. It went to the main guy at Pilgrim Media Group. Um, and, you know, you prep for that. You know, that's that big pitch meeting. And, uh, you know, and, and what's smart, if, you're, if anybody's trying to pitch anything, and I was bringing actually unique type of deal um, that's not the normal type of deal to a studio yeah. partner. So that was, a, that was a positive. But also, you know, the advice if you're pitching something, if, you know, if you, if you can set it up in a way or present it in a way where it's a win-win uh it you're much easier to get a hey let's do that why wouldn't right, we type of right. thing? yeah yeah and you know that's what we aimed for um you know we, we planned this big kind of presentation and this one sheet you know a five-page thing and a one-page thing and uh sat in there and about 11 minutes after we started time he's like i like it let's do it yeah and so uh <laughs> we went into it was the easiest bitch meeting you've ever had um and we started developing and went into production very quickly and kind of mapped out as much as we knew we had what we should have right and had great support from you know the the individuals on this floor at pilgrim media group led by henry uh aaron wes uh shane patterson um and then you know like eric lakowski and even anthony lesnar and production support you know and it was it was just so helpful to have a you know like a giant entity be your partner for the infrastructure and the access to gear and people and all that so it was a very unique situation that i probably won't ever duplicate but i try every time because it was (laughs) as good as it gets yeah Uh, and we had sort of this little tight-knit core group uh that we were very autonomous uh in what we were set out to do in our time frame and as we were building it, we got lucky with more events adding on. And then, you know, we didn't know that the 30th anniversary Alamo Draft House tour was going to happen until a month or two after that. Sure. And we lucked out that I would say, hey, guys, you guys got to come on the road for 17 days with us and document this because it's going to be bonkers. Yeah. And they did. And I mean, this is we had other stuff planned and that all of this awesome stuff just kept falling in line. Huh. And then it just got better and better. And the timing, I mean, honestly, couldn't have been, could have been better with a lot of that. And that's what we were aiming for with that 30th anniversary year, which was interesting because I was also doing that other show at Nerdist and we were making the documentary at the same time I was making 22 episodes of this other hosted show. So it was a very busy year. (laughs) And, uh, but, you know, we just kind of, it all just kind of flew right through and we made this documentary in very short amount of time. Yeah, that's, we're, a, that's a quick turnaround. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's even quicker because most people that make what you, you know, quote unquote, in, this is like a half indie, half studio documentary. Yeah. Um, most people that make documentaries, and they're you know, they take three, four, five years. They're editing on their own time, right? And right. Uh, and hopefully they get all what they want and and finally deliver a product that they're happy with. Right. We actually approach this almost like a uh, a scripted narrative feature shoot with 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 time constraints because every month for 10 months we had hard dates of events or things that we milestones we needed to hit and in between those kind of 
milestones, we filled it in with the stuff that we needed or that we were getting. And we were editing in real, we, I say me, I didn't edit anything. Uh, <laughs> that was all Henry and Wes. Uh, we were editing in real time yeah. from, from the start because we shot 50 terabytes of footage in 10 months. Oh my God. And so that translates into hundreds of hours of, of footage. And uh, because of the unique way we approached it with these events and Henry and I mean, we were editing at, you know, Wes is up at two in the morning or in the back of an airplane or the back of a minivan making selects from the night before, because we've got to clear those cards so we can shoot the yeah. next day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we were on the road for 17 days in 17 cities, uh, you know, just on that tour. And then we traveled other places as well. Uh, including London, you know, we went to London, you know, to do a big event. And that was one thing that was important. You know, I wanted to go to London and I wanted to go to Japan for an event this week, but we didn't get to Japan. So uh, the London suffices for our international flavor, but it was in, we started rolling cameras in April and we premiered at our first festival the next April. Oh my God. What a, what it is and and, and, and you I don't I don't know I forgot that have you seen have you seen the document I don't yeah, is, yeah. is you seen oh yeah. yeah there's a lot in there yeah. <laughs> this yeah. documentary has a lot jam packed in there and that just goes to the kind of the the hell I put those guys through oh and scheduled God. all this stuff but the you know the enthusiasm and the skill that that team put into it to to make it look yeah. and sound like it did the London one too specifically is really stands out uh, in the documentary because there's, you know, there's a very cool moment in there that I don't really want to give away because I want people to see it in the documentary, but that happened in 12 months. You did all of that in 12 months time. That's wild. Yeah, technically, yeah, technically 10 months time. Like we shot everything in 10 months oh and God. was editing as we went and, you know, went to final, we actually locked picture our festival cut like two weeks before yeah. we premiered at our first festival. And then we had six and a half months of fest, uh, film festival all over the world. Yes. Yeah. So, so you now Ryan and Ashley are with you through what seems like the duration of, of things. Of the, of the, they are definitely on the two. Like you, you see them so much because that that seventeen city tour is is so much of right. the documentary because we right. use it as a through line from start to finish, right? Uh, and it tells its own story. Right. Uh, they were definitely on that was seventeen days, uh, but you know, and then they were also on their you know in studio interviews, uh, yes. you know, and around, and then at conventions that we document as well. So right. they're, yeah, they're they're pretty much besides myself, it's Ryan and Ashley that are in you know involved in at least half of everything that happened yeah uh and then you know we fill in those gaps with all the other names and faces as we're on the road or in the studio so with some of those other people too like you know getting interviews with with other people like fred uh like how was everybody willing uh i mean was it an easy thing to like because you i think as a viewer i think a lot of people think like that cast of that movie i love after the after the movie's over they all were best friends and they walked off into the sunset together that is that shit does not happen you usually not yeah <laughs> but usually uh, with with something like this what was it were people eager or willing like yeah i will i will absolutely sit down with you guys and talk about that yeah we never really got a lot of i'm not comfortable i don't care uh, right. you know, type of things if someone was in it or on it yeah. uh, because we approached it in a certain manner. Like no one's really sitting down and talking on camera in Wolfman's Got Nards that 
whether you're a cast member, a crew member, the writer or director or a fan, yeah, you don't get a camera interview unless you have a story of how this movie impacted you in some right. way, shape or form. It's not just talking about something for the sake of talking about it. The only people that are in this documentary as faces that have comments are setting up a concept of fandom or legacy like Chuck Russell or Heather Livenkamp or um, uh, uh, Zach Galligan or oh, Christina sure. Klebeck, yeah. you know, cause they're all genre names and we got them at great conventions and they were talking about, the concept of cult or genre or something. They're the only ones that are the asterisk. Everybody else, you're on camera because you have a story to tell about how this movie impacted you, whether you were in it, on it, or watched it. Right. And I think that that really makes a difference, you know, in, in the in the whole story there. Not a you know, not a lot of pushback, not a lot of, oh, I don't really want to. The only one that was more of a difficult interview to actually nail down was Fred. Okay. And, you know, from the beginning, I told Fred what I was doing. Um, and he kind of, you know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah. Because hmm, mm. he's, he's very, you know, conflicted with his relationship with this movie. Completely understood. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And we went through months and months and months of the, of the, sh- of the, of the production. And we, we really needed Fred to, you know, kind of sit down and, and cause I knew what I, I knew what I, I knew what was there, what could come out and, and what I thought should be discussed. It's all up to him though. That's his story. Right. And, you know, there was a time where I don't think, uh, I, I think Fred was kind of, uh, I don't want to say dismissive of it, but it was like, I'm not really sure. Like Andre knows what he's doing. Or, like, I don't know these, <laughs> I don't know these production guys, like who's Henry. Uh, yeah. What, what are they like, what are they doing? Fully can totally understand that. Cause sure. you know, I think, you know, uh, whether he does or not i always think fred just only sees me as a 13 year old kid yeah <laughs> you know that you know that just you know uh who's you know staking dracula and has a high-pitched voice <laughs> and's never done anything <laughs> else um or doesn't have a good plan to make something happen <laughs> and i i totally understand i also understand his uh you know kind of reticence about really talking about this movie because it's sure. a very personal thing and really what's what made it happen um is we had to do uh at fantastic fest and in, in which is that alamo draft house in, in austin texas a big gigantic film festival we actually threw the friday night party which ended up being the 30th anniversary fan party for the monster squad and we actually rebuilt the treehouse in the bar and i put up oh. the posters and had production stuff and costumes on mannequins and uh that was very interesting it was in the festival cut we actually cut that out as the release it's a special feature uh, but that was that was a lot of work for those couple days. Sure. Yeah. But I also had to show uh, a thirty minute kind of teaser cut of the documentary at this festival. Okay. Yep. Uh, what it should have been was it should have been a five minute, six minute teaser cut. Get it all changed. But anyway, we had to put that together. And part of that thirty minute, Henry and I sent Henry put together on the road, I said, this is what we need. And he was like, Oh shit. Uh, and by the way, you have a month to do it. Um, while we're still on the road shooting a documentary, he's got to put together a 30 minute teaser cut, but we had six or seven minutes of it. And we sent it to Fred to show him what things were looking like and sounding like, and what we're doing. And what was 
what was really funny in that moment, I got it back. You know, I got notes from Fred about my movie <laughs> and he was like, well, what you really need is make sure I was like, I didn't send this to you for notes, but I will certainly take them. I just wanted to show you. Uh, we wanted to show you what it was looking like and sounding like, oh don't God. think we don't know what we're doing. And that's, I was really worried about that. And I was like, but that's great. But then we sent him the finished 30 minute cut. Yeah. Uh, and that was in October. And he called me and was like, got it. I understand. This looks fantastic. Yeah. Let's, let's sit down and do this. That's great. And Fred was, I think the, our last interview. Really? Uh, if not, I take that. I was our, our Adam F Goldberg, I think was actually our officially last one. Cause we waited to do it on his set after the holidays. Sure. Uh, sure. When his set was on. So I think we went January, but like in end of November uh, or December or something is when we went to Fred's house and, and sat down and uh, he was comfortable. He was yeah. relaxed. He was like, you guys aren't making something that shit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I now trust this process yeah. and let's sit down and talk about it. And so we just set up the camera, sat in his house, let him sit on the couch and yep. it wasn't really leading or pulling teeth. You know, we just talked about stuff. I asked questions and he just rolled uh, and we just rolled. Yeah. And we were there for about four hours. He is his, the best part too is for for people when they see the documentary if they haven't already is i feel like fred is is such a he's a very important through line through the entire duration of the documentary because he is he adds levity to a situation because as fans we're very wistful in our memories of that movie and fred has a like you had already said he has a much different relationship <laughs> with that from yeah. the career and business side of it and how it affected him Sure. And it's really interesting narrative that's going throughout the entire documentary that kind of, as you get too far off the ground, it, he, he's able to kind of pull you back and show you the business side of it. That's exactly right. And once we got that, we knew that's yeah. what I was hunting for because yeah. I knew what was there. Could we get it? And then once we got it, we knew that was the counterbalance to everything else. Yeah, yeah. Because everything else just is basically this tongue bath of like, oh my god, Monster Squad's so fantastic. It's my world. Look at my tattoo. Right. <laughs> uh, and you know that's awesome, but we have to counterbalance that uh, with something. Right. And I didn't want it to just be you know the loss of Brent. I didn't want it to just be the loss of you know you know box office numbers. Right. Uh, in Fred's interview and openness and you know kind of. Um, uh, uh, the reality of his situation and the impact of how it affected him. Yep. He's the only, he's the counter interview. He's the counter yeah. celebration yeah. because his whole experience with this is negative. Yeah. Even though, you know, to quote him, it's the best movie that he's made mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet killed his career. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It, I don't think Monster Squad was the only thing that killed a, a, a career. I mean, it's like, look, there was, and this is what's unfair in Hollywood. Not only your 48 hours to make a box office success, but you get a, a, a writer or a director that makes three movies in a very short amount of time. That's a career. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? He does it in like three years. He makes yep. three movies in three years yep. and they all go up in scale and scope and studio size. Uh, they don't happen to be successes at the box office. Therefore you go directly to director jail. Do not pass. Go do not collect $200. You're right in director jail, 
which is very unfair because of that box office premium as your barometer for success. And not only is it unfair to Fred as a human being, it's unfair to us because we don't get to see what he would have wanted to do or put out. Absolutely. And there's a lot out there. So it's unfair to us that we don't get that. Yes. Yeah. And it, it has to sting to a degree because I, 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 I know you, you guys have all seen things like how stranger things are super eight, how you mm-hmm. can't help, but look at that and go, that's the monster squad. <laughs> like right. that's exactly what I think of when I thought of the movie, when we saw the movie super eight and seeing stranger things or, or even something on a smaller scale, like the movie summer of 84 that came out a couple of years ago, these things, they exist because the monster squad existed. Mm-hmm. And while it might be like, Oh, that's a nice homage for somebody like Fred that in his position, that has to somewhat be painful. It, it's, it's got to sting or be a yeah. dull throb in some way, shape or form, right. you know, because let's say you mentioned uh, super eight JJ Abrams doing pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, the Duffer brothers, you know, had the biggest thing that has ever been on Netflix. They're not hurting. Yeah. And, you know, even with something like, I, I, I think, uh, you know, summer of 84 love the movie and the, yeah. the writer director group, it's, it's a three pack that made that movie. Yeah. They're uh, French Canadians, RKSS. They're awesome. We're friends yeah. with them. Like we know them good. and, you know, I love the stuff they did turbo kid. And then they yes. did, um, you know, summer of 84, yep. summer of 84 is a direct lift from monsters one up there's some direct there are some direct lifts in stranger things there are some very similar things in super eight but that's what happens you know we make we make art based on stuff that affected us and we want to make that uh it's for someone like fred i can't imagine you know what that feels like even to today now you fast forward all the monster squad resurgence you know the doc has come out um you know he does his interview um, and what's great now, it's kind of a full circle thing that Fred and Shane over the last couple of years have been teaming up again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you know, whether the movie was great or not, they made a hundred million dollar studio movie called the predator together. Yep. And the original concepts and the stuff I, I knew would be cool. And I think yep. if Fox had allowed Shane to make a Shane black movie and leave him alone, the movie would have been much better. I agree. Um, I agree. There are some elements in there that I liked. There's an element that I didn't like. I know some stuff that the studio came in and stepped on, and then they had a lot of other issues leading up on, on the, on the release of it. Uh, but they've been working, they have projects, you know, and they're working together, which hadn't happened for 20 something years. Right. Uh, I, I don't know if that puts a salve on, you know, the, the kind of road rash from 30 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think it maybe uh, alleviates that a little bit. You know, but yeah, I mean, I mean, look at the look at the juggernaut that Stranger Things is. Um, I am, you know, is 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 Gatton Matarazzo the icon that he is without Brent Chalem or without Jeff Cohen? Right, right. Um, it, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it, that also affects, you know, affects us as a cast too. We're like, Oh yeah, great. I'm, I'm glad, you know, if we were an inspiration, so I'm, I'm glad you guys are enjoying it. Right. <laughs> uh, and by the way, Duffer brothers, I'd love to be in season four um, because you brought Sean Aston in, but I, my phone, my, my email, I must've missed the email. 
it's yeah. only fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's the um that's the uh that's the the terrible self-aggrandizing pitch to the number <laughs> Well, it's only fair. They took they took him away from us, then they have to they have to give him <laughs> That's right. Fair. Uh yeah. and you know, I actually really wanted the Duffer brothers uh to sit down and talk about the the documentary. Oh sure. Um because this was right when Stranger Things had just come out. Yeah. So it was the biggest thing ever. Uh, and then we got an interesting response from their agent that uh, they had never seen the Monster Squad before. Um, I don't believe. Which I, I don't know. I have not met either one of them yet. I said, "I look. I know how agents respond. Yeah, I know how the machine works." Uh, until I sit down and have a tea with the Duffer Brothers, and they tell me we had never seen Monster Squad, um, I I won't hold any judgment. They may not have seen Monster Squad. Uh. However, <laughs> however. Somebody on that. Their writers have seen the Monster Squad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you ask RKSS and, you know, those, the, the, uh, that triumvirate that made Summer of 84. And they're like, oh, no, this is totally a Monster Squad riff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is because this is, we love that movie. We wanted to make our own just to see if, you know, we could and put it in with another element of the creepy neighbor and he happens to be the right. cop. And right. look, Summer of 84 is great because that's dark too. The kid gets killed. I mean, it's, it's like, it's dark. like, it's, yeah. Not, they ain't messing around. No. And, um, you know, if you knew, you know, these people that made that movie, like you guys made that dark movie. You're so fun and cool. Like what is, uh, but I love, I love that. I love that crew. And I, you know, we get, we get to hang out for years and, you know, we haven't seen anybody in a year, but uh, yeah. you know, I can't wait to get back out there. Um, now just to hang out with the Duffer brothers and JJ Abrams. Yeah. That's... <laughs> but yeah, you know, back, you know, with Fred, you know, it was it was a very different uh path from right after right. even before during monster squad with fred and shane right and uh, i th- i think it's very unfair um you know shane did just fine <laughs> yeah. Yeah. shane did just fine and yeah. fred went to director jail and i think that's very unfair and i mean shane did what hell iron one of the iron mans well that was after yeah so yeah. you know during while we were uh, making Monster Squad, Shane sto- uh, sold because Monster Squad was the first thing that Shane wrote that got made. Yeah. And while we were making Monster Squad, he sold another script, uh, his first solo spec script, a little thing called Lethal Weapon. My God. I forgot. And so now he's this, you know, hot spec screenwriter yeah. with a franchise. Yeah. Uh, he actually walks off of the franchise during number two. Um, because of studio exec reasons, like, you know, and which is funny stories. Yeah. Uh, and then he goes and sells at the time in 90 or in 90, I think 90, uh, the highest spec screenplay in the history of Hollywood, uh, The Last Boy Scout. Yeah. So Last Boy Scout comes out and then he turns around and beats his own spec sales price on The Long Kiss Goodnight. <laughs> and now he's the biggest screenwriter in Hollywood. Yes. And then for 10 years, no one would talk to him. Yep. Uh, for a number there's there's more yeah. than one there's look there's always more than one side to a story yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then you know he comes out with uh, he says look I'm I'm tired of studios buying my movies and then directors you know not really making them who they are or putting the people we should because right. some people didn't like the casting in Long Kiss Goodnight yeah. uh, they didn't like that Rennie Harlan put his girlfriend in but this is how the machine works you know so it's like yeah look you made a lot of money on a spec screenplay should you complain Right. I don't right. think so. And I don't think he was, but he said, I want to make, a, I want to make my next movie. Like I think I'm going to direct it. And it was interesting because Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is my favorite Shane Black movie. 
it's fantastic. It's- and the you know the story with that I love. Again, here's a tangent, folks. Uh, where <laughs> we're talking about someone other than myself or Ashley or Wes. Um, <laughs> you know, he I think he goes to you know Warner Brothers. Uh, and, uh, who made Lethal Weapon? Is it it's Donner, right? Is it Donner or Silver? Um, uh, Joe, uh, uh, Joe Silver. Yes, Joe Silver. I think you're right. right. Yeah. And says, Hey, I've got a new script. Uh, let's, let's make this. Can you take it to the studio? You know, whatever the conversation was. And he's like, I don't know, you know, maybe they'll read. He's like, Oh, and by the way, I'm directing this one. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, that's never going to happen. Like you're never directed anything. Like the studio's not going to give you a big, you know, big budget for a movie. Right. And he's like, Oh, and by the way, uh, and then they're like, okay, they've agreed. I guess you can direct it. So that was a win. And he's like, well, if I'm not directing it, then we're not making it. And then like, okay, so he gets to direct it. And he's like, oh, and by the way, I wrote it with two actors in mind. And gets asked the question, who are these two actors? Now you've got to go back to the early 2000s. And when he says these two names, a studio goes, absolutely no. No way. And it was Val Kilmer and Robert Downey Jr. It's so snake bit at this point. And I mean, Robert Downey Jr. was literally dead and gone, never working again, ever. He was so uninsurable at this time. He was, he was, he was canceled before there was canceling. Yes, he was. Uh, He was just straight ghosted. And, um, but it all came down to being uninsurable. He's like, well, I wrote, like, I'm directing it. And these are two guys, otherwise we're not making it. And somehow... (laughs) Yeah. They they agreed and got these two guys and literally resurrected the career of two people. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And then the studio still screwed Shane's movie by didn't wide really did not wide release it and push it. Yes. And put it on DVD for Christmas. Yep. Yep. And of course it's a Shane Black movie, so it's a Christmas movie. So it wasn't even in the theaters during Christmas time. Oh my god. They put it on DVD because it's where you make more money. Yep. Because uh, you don't have to spend the money to promote it or put PA, uh, you know, prints and advertising money on it. Right, right. So now Shane snake bit again by studio execs and um, but it resurrects the career of Robert Downey Jr. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Who a short time later becomes freaking Iron Man and is the <laughs> highest paid actor of all time. Insane. <laughs> it's it. And that's. And that's why Shane gets to di- write and direct Iron Man three, right, which is right, kind right. of like a great, let's, let's make that happen. Yeah, yeah. And then he gets to go make uh, the nice guys and the hey. predator. And, you know, right. so this is, I love, I love this kind of trajectory. I love it. it <laughs> it's the, it, it is the ebb and flow of, of your industry is when you're up, you're up, when you're down, you're down, but down is not always forever. And, oh. uh, right. but you know, kind of circling back to what you said too, like Shane kept going Fred's in director jail. You know, I mean, that's, that's a, a, like you, you're going to feel that hurt. And then, you know, when this documentary rolls around and he's so crucial to it. And I, when people see it, if you haven't seen it, he is going to, he's such, he's kind of the pulse of the whole thing. Absolutely. And I think that, I, I think that it's, it is a true glimpse into how frustrating the the world behind a cult film is because when we say cult films mm-hmm. it has a cult following it doesn't mean cult doesn't mean money cult doesn't mean <laughs> studios are happy it means it endured because it had something special but that doesn't equate to a, no. a bottom line and usually by the time it gets that status if whatever that status means at the time the the whoever made it is not, not making money off of it it's just right. happening and they hate that um you know ashley like what do you you know coming into this era and you didn't you know you saw monster squad there but what's your 
kind of favorite obscure movie that no one, do you have a favorite that no one saw or that you pushed or that when you were a kid, maybe it was a kid or maybe you're an adult and said, Hey, you've got to see this. And no one's like, what movie are you talking about? Huh. Is it there one with Robert Downey Jr. that you really like? Like the heavenly kid or have something heaven. I don't know. I don't know. Was that? Or maybe a Disney movie or something. No. No, what what was that? I can't think of what it is. It's something something heaven with Robert Downey Jr. in it. Uh, is Robert Downey Jr. in it? I, I, don't, oh, know. I don't know. Wait, yeah. now we're all on our phones. We're all on oh our gosh, phones. I like know. That. Um, it, but like with her, it like there were animated movies that I I I had never seen because of what the hell was that movie called? And maybe it's not Robert Downey Jr. But <laughs> well, did we just earwig Robert Downey Jr. with the West and look like it's everything's Robert Downey Jr. now? You willed him into my brain, and now I <laughs> I can't remember what it was. But the the fact that like the fact that things like well, my like, brain, I don't know, my brain doesn't. Well, like I have that effect on people. Actually, don't worry about it. No, no, no. My <laughs> Heart, heart and soul. Heart and soul. Heart, heart and soul. soul. Yeah. Heart okay. and soul. That one. Yeah. But then also, uh, I was a huge fan, which I know I'm not alone in this, but a huge fan of the Goofy movie. Speaking of Disney stuff, that I okay. that no one had ever. Like, I he had never seen never it. Never seen it. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I made the kids watch. It. I was like, no, we're gonna watch this movie <laughs> because this is a great movie. And now they are, they love it. They're obsessed with it, you know? And, well, the, and you're the, you're the kind of spark for that. So, you know, that's, that's yeah. an interesting, we all, we all have those movies. Like there's, yeah. there's movies that I love that people are like, first I've never even heard of it or why would you ever watch that movie? I'm like, what? Why right? not? Yep. And I mean, I have such a wide range of, you know, kind of style and, 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 but I also have a thing where it's like, I'm, I'm phys- it's physically impossible for me to not watch a movie if I'm flipping and it's on. <laughs> like, oh, I'm like, oh, no, there it is. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> yep. Bye. Talk to me in an hour. I can't not watch it. There's I, a handful I, of those and those change over time. Yeah. yeah. I, I, uh, one for me is the changeling. Uh, the new one or the original? The George C. Scott one. George C. Scott one. Okay. Yeah. If that's on, I'm like, I'm watching the changeling again. I, yeah, it, and that's okay. It's your it's your comfort food. It is. <laughs> you it have is. weird comfort food, Wes, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> oh God, mine's Mean Girls. Yours is Mean. Yours is oh. Mean Girls. <laughs> My comfort. Food. It's all in how you balance it. I don't know. That, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter. <laughs> no, uh, no. My, my mine are just as weird and obscure. Well, what are <laughs> like Oh, it, I have like five. Um, oh, but let's, I, we got to hear them. Okay, I mean, if Purple Rain is on, it's getting watched. Sure. Um, if uh, Pitch Perfect is on, it's getting watched. Okay. Uh, if Pure Country is on, it's one of my favorite sure. movies of all the time. Oh my God. Uh, and then in in the modern era is uh, well, Pitch Perfect modern. Um, yeah. Uh, honestly, I love the movie uh, The Good Shepherd, the okay. Matt Damon movie. Yep. yep. And Molly's Game. Molly's Game. Oh, really? And I realized that uh, Aaron Sorkin's a good writer. <laughs> sure is, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, you hate to be such like a machine, you know, like, you know, like all these, oh, this guy wins awards and nah, 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 the West Wing, blah, blah, blah. I don't like these guys. And I was like, you know what? There's a reason his movies are good is because they're written well. <laughs> yeah. And it's all about dialogue. There's Chase. Um, <laughs> the, it is. It is one of those things too, where like it, it's, it's easy to dive bomb these guys that are huge names, but 
Spielberg is Spielberg for a reason. Like he's really good at what he does. That's this is true, and most of the stuff that you like Spielberg for, you don't realize it's happening to you. But you, that's why you like it because it's different. It's a lot of the, you know, it's a big thing with the Spielbergness of a movie is how the story is told. But right. it's also the camera work and how he sets up and moves actors in a frame. And you know, there's great YouTube videos. You know, right. like there's a great 30 minute YouTube video of what St- Steven Spielberg does with actors in in a frame or with big long tracking shots. Like go watch that. That's fascinating. Right. Um, um, but like you talk about Spielberg, some of my favorite movies of all time happen to be Spielberg, you know, right. Jaw, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Jaws are great films. Yeah. Um, Bridge of Spies is another movie that I will have to watch if it's on, even though it's slow and about two guys. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, I get you. Yep. It's, it's so well performed. It's so well acted. It's a Cold War movie. So I'm, I'm a Cold War kind of nut. I love Cold War okay. stuff. Yep. And this is the height of that. Yep. And I thought the performances were fantastic. It's Tom Hanks. I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for me, it's Bachelor Party and The Bridge of Spies. You can't get any better. <laughs> right? It's like, those are his two best movies. And everything else just, you know, doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's why we enjoy movies. It's something connects. Yeah. And uh, it, it could be the people. It could be the writing. It could be the, the situation. And I didn't mention my all-time favorite obscure movie that people go, are you kidding me? And that's Mr. Holland's Opus. I ha- That movie is one of my all-time favorite movies. And I I don't, I think I know why. I just don't know if I know why. Um, I I do think I know why. Um, And and ironically, Richard Dreyfuss is in three of my all-time favorite movies. Well, yeah. I I mean, he's, he's, Richard Dreyfuss, like Tom Hanks, if you go through, if you go back through like classic favorites that are like universally beloved, Richard Dreyfuss is one of those guys that pops up a lot. Yeah, uh, he does, and it's um, even. I mean, he was always a movie star, celebrity. Yeah. He was never the heartthrob. He was never, right. you know, the scandal-ridden guy. He right. was. He was more politicky than he was scandalous. You know, yeah. you know, or salacious. Yeah, uh, he just went and did funny characters or serious characters in in, right. in a fun way. Right, and you know. That's why it's good. That's why, that's why movies are good. It doesn't matter when they were made, right? right? You know, it's about these people that make them that that are so good. And uh, you know, I'm a. You think back, and I mean, The Sting is one of my favorite. The Sting is on. I got to watch The Sting because that yeah. is an excellent movie. Yeah, yeah, it is absolutely. The the writing is so smart and funny, and the acting's perfect. Yep. Um, and so that you know, and that's you know, we're talking about Fred and Shane as writers and direct, you know, like why things connect and we can sit here and talk about our favorite movies of all time, whether they're weird or obscure or cult or the goofy movie or, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's about, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I I love, you know, social media. I I love to hate it is, you know, the truthful statement. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, people get on and they bash this or bash that. And I was like, what do you let's talk about what you like and let's just go there it's like you're gonna bash something one you shouldn't bash you've never you've never done anything (laughs) like you should at least try it out and go i did it better so look at me um and that rarely happens but you know this isn't easy to do it's art you 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 like some paintings but not other paintings you like some styles of paintings but not others you like some styles of photography and other movies it's the same thing right Uh, you like some styles of books but not the other but you know what i'm glad you're reading yeah 
Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't care what you're reading. Uh, I, I mean, I read all the time. And this year, ironically, the one year you should be reading every single <laughs> book printed, I haven't read jack shit. No, no shit. Yeah. It's so weird. I've just been in this whole other mindset. And now luckily today I have a book in my hand this week. I finally got it. And I was like, I'm just, I read, you know, kind of little escape paperbacks and, um, you know, different, I go in and out of, you know, fiction yeah. and nonfiction, yeah. but like, I should be like, why don't I just read every classic and let's go read all the, I'm like, nah, I'm just going to watch reruns of ER all day. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I, that's what I do. And then when ER is over house is on. So I'm like, I'm okay. And, um, <laughs> and then Jeopardy's on at seven. So my day is yeah. complete. So, so yeah. there you go. There's the day. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's been 12 months to today. It's been yeah. 12 months of this craziness. Uh, yeah. I haven't even watched a lot of movies. I've watched more TV of things that I, TV shows that I know the dialogue to, I just keep watching. Like I, I'm not consuming new content right now for some That's reason. What Cash does. That's what our son he, does. Yeah. He just, he just zeroes in. Like he can't, it, there's so many new things, but he just. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much good stuff out there that I do right. want to see, but I don't, I just, I'm not in the mind space oh, to no. let's start. Like I did watch the one trendy thing I watched. It was actually, I watched the Queen's Gambit. And that was fantastic. Oh, See, we that? haven't okay. watched that yet. I oh, it's that's really good. Okay, that's really that's really really good. One, it's a period piece. I love the period, I love the time, I love the costuming, I love the production design, and she is absolutely fantastic in this in in this series. Yeah, she, sure. we just give her she sh- she should have everything. Just give it to her because she's great. Uh, even though there's a lot of other great people, but I I loved her in in the witch, and oh, which was a fantastic well, movie. That is a favorite That's in this one house. Of my oh, that, God, that movie. And you either love the witch or you can't stand the witch. Right. And I loved them. I thought the performances of everything was genius, absolutely genius. And, and the look. Um, the look yeah. of the movie, the color oh. palette. Oh my God. Yeah, that's a great movie. I saw that at, at Fantastic Fest the first time I was like, what is this is blowing my mind yeah and um it was uh but that's a hard commercial movie to put in the in the mall and let people do it. that's not sure. really that's definitely a festival movie yeah yeah but i mean that's what's interesting about now we get to talk about success of other people and and things and and just how much we enjoy this entertainment yeah it's entertainment but it's also uh, uh you know i hate to sound artsy and fartsy but it's art you know, <laughs> you're creating something that's entertaining someone and creating discussions on it and uh, you know, movies and TV are just our new museums. You know, it's just that our yeah. museums happen to move now. Yes. Yeah. And they make noise. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I think it's, it's a fascinating form of entertainment. It's a fascinating form of art. Uh, and it, there's no end to the discussion. Right. No. Right. There's always another, there's always another movie to talk about that oh, yeah. you forgot yeah. about or you've never seen <laughs> that. Yeah, I mean, we just start going down the line. Like everybody goes, yeah. "What's your favorite movie?" I was like, <laughs> "What do you mean, one of my favorite movie? Like this week? Like what do you of all time?" Yeah, yeah. You know, that doesn't mean my favorite movie. Like, but if Pitch Perfect is on, that's not my favorite movie of all time. But I know every single song and dialogue into it, and I can do it, and I can even do some of the dance routines. So oh, don't. Yeah. That's, don't... that's me with West Side Story. I know all the dialogue, all the songs, all the, everything. <laughs> West Side Story is great. It looks great. Uh, yes, Natalie Wood's amazing. Rita Moreno is that movie. She is so good in that movie that you don't realize that that you're like, wait a minute, this is Rita Moreno. How f- just dynamite is she in that movie? Um, and if that movie was made today and it was her, she would be getting all the accolades. Back then, like, meh. I know, right? yeah. Like, ah. 
And she's and she's literally devouring every scene she's in. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, with like big forks. She's like, ah, and, and, and she's no, so and, good in that. So good. She st- she's, she takes all the light. Like it all goes to her. Yeah. Oh yeah. She's a she's she's like a she's just a gravity well of of all the energy. Um, but that's indicative of some of the performances of of kind of that era, maybe yeah. right. And you know, you mentioned West Side Story. So do you like other musicals? Ashley, are you a musical? I'm like new old. I love musicals. Any, I'm I'm good with with any. I'll watch a musical before I'll. Yeah. I I I won't. I I'm not far behind on that. And some of my favorite movies are or that I enjoy the most are are musicals. Even the old ones are new. Like it. Guys and Dolls, the movie is one of my favorite movies. It's one of my favorite musicals. Grease is my all time favorite musical. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, because I grew up loving it, just hit me at a certain time. Sure. Yeah. Uh, P- Pitch Perfect is technically a musical. Yeah. Um, Purple Rain's a technically oh, a musical. Yeah. Your country's a musical. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> even though they don't, they, they actually do break out in song. And, wow. you know, it's, it's a concert, but it's okay. Uh, but, you know, uh, so, grew up watching, loving Sound of Music. Yeah. Uh, I, I, oh, I love, God. I love, I love Chicago. I mean, this is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We and watch I all don't, this is oh yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's and that's what's great to watch yeah. Hamilton but he he watched but I liked it yeah yeah the yeah. the 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 theatrical version of the, yeah. that just came out yeah. yeah I watched most of it I mean it's, it's, okay. it's certainly inventive it's fun it was uh, obviously a commercial success and, uh, yeah you know Insane. but you know I I do think it's cool because uh, this was la- year before the before times yeah. of 2020 I think it was in the fall of 19 or something um, Lynn Mora uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda uh, uh, had posted a gif of me as like his mood for the day and I was like I'm good. Doug, oh, like, I was like, wait, is Lynn Manuel Miranda a Monster Squad fan, or did he just like search in Giphy for what his movie was? And came up? Like, does he know where this is from? I was like, I gotta know. I want to hang out. I was like, yeah. so I was like, hey, dude, DM me. Like, what's up? That's me. How's it going? Hi. <laughs> oh my god, Cash would die. He just die if so that. Like, they die. saw they went and saw Hamilton a couple times. She she and Cash did. Oh wow. Oh, and I, I that they, was like luckily it was yeah crazy. They had a hard time getting tickets, but they got them. And I still I was like, you guys go do it. It's your thing, you know. And when it was on, but at this point, by the time it hits Disney Plus, I have heard the Hamilton soundtrack <laughs> no less than sixty thousand times. Yeah. So it was. I was going into it like I have to hear these songs again. Oh my god. Yeah, that's yeah. We sit down and I was like, well, shit, it's really good. And really like, <laughs> it, it's very engaging. And, and it really like, if, if it drew people back to theater in a huge way. Yeah. It, it absolutely did. I think it, it really, it, it lit that fire again, resurrected, you know, people wanting to go and see big theatrical performances yeah. Yeah. instead of just kind of these brooding kind of, you know, either right. classics right. or revivals of classics or like this dark, deep like you know the world sucks and we're all gonna die and i'm <laughs> i'm one man sitting in a theater on a stool yes. and i'm gonna say yes. this for 90 minutes yep. um yeah and I, it was entertaining it was updated uh, it, it definitely resurrected you know at least some notion of for enjoyment sure. there and so yeah. that means that was a success whether yeah. whether you like it or not it doesn't matter yeah. <laughs> you know it's maybe it's not for you that's, that's fine yeah. go find something else you do like the la- i haven't i haven't seen hamilton on on stage um I'm trying to think the last time I saw something, I don't go to New York that much. Life is just I don't go to New York that much. It was actually um, 
was in New York. If, if Peter Scolari is in a play and I'm in New York, I go see it. Sure. sure <laughs> right. Yeah. So, cause he's yeah. still <laughs> and um, I, I missed, we were in New York one weekend and there, oh, I forgot what it was called, but it was this awesome cast. It was, I, I don't know. It was like Hanks. I think Hanks was in it. Scolari was in it. Uh, like Billy Crystal was in it. Like it was in the side off Broadway. Town. I was like, what is this? <laughs> and I was like, we got to go. And so we walked up, was going to buy ticket. Like, I don't ask, like, I don't call Peter ahead of time and go leave me tickets. I got to go buy the ticket. And like that one day we were in town, that's when they were dark. I was like, oh, oh. So I, I forgot what it was called. It's called like the all stars or some baseball oriented thing, but it had this amazing cast. I was like, okay, what is it? Had a short run. It was sort of like a, like a proof of concept type thing. I don't know. I was like, gotcha. oh, this is the one. How did I not see this? If it's baseball, Billy Crystal, that all. It was, I think it was something like that. I don't even remember, but uh, Peter's such a, I mean, some, you know, kind of talking about the dad list again. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, one of my favorite humans and, you know, I owe so many really cool things and memories to working on a TV show with Peter. It was, yeah. it was right after Bosom Buddies uh, right. with that other, uh, what's that other guy? Yeah, Tom Hanks. Oh, yeah. And, um, <laughs> wonder whatever happened to him. <laughs> yeah, he, I think he did all right. Uh, he did some, you know, he did some commercials. Uh, but, that, you know, right after Bosom Buddies, Peter got his own show. <laughs> yeah. And Tom Hanks hadn't really done Bachelor Party or Splash or anything yet. Yeah. And, um, you know, he went that route. And, it was a great show and I, I can juggle today. I'm a juggler because of Peter Scolari. You tell me oh, how to that's juggle. Great. Oh, that's so cool. the audience. I got to do circus of the stars twice because of Peter Scolari. Um, and, you know, he, we stayed in touch for years and then he moved back to New York and I didn't see him, you know, until like 2009, you know, for oh, wow. almost 20 years. And then we went to dinner in New York and I went to his play and we got to hang out for a little bit. And, uh, he's just one of my favorite people, you know, and because he meant a lot to me as a kid. Yeah. yeah. And, um, it, you know, I think he's a fantastic performer. I think he's absolute talent. People give him a lot of, they give him a lot of grief. Like, like everybody's like, Oh, Tom Hanks allows that guy to be in his movie again. I was like, hold on a minute. <laughs> uh, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> uh, Peter was the nominated actor on bosom buddies and got his own show on a network before Tom Hanks did anything else. So, yep you know, eat this fire hose. Um, and so I always, you know, I don't think you should have to defend it, but I'm like, I'm saying that and I'll fight you in the parking lot over it. <laughs> Tom Hanks is fabulous, but yeah. Peter Scolari yeah. is fabulous too. Um, and everybody thinks he's just throwing him a bone. I was like, that's not what's happening here. No. Tom Hanks is making a movie and goes, I need someone awesome in this bit. Where's right. Peter? Right. That's what happens. Right. Uh, and then, you know, he proves his own, he goes on girls on HBO and gets nominated for another Emmy, by the way, which he already has one or two. Yeah. Um, and cause I used to, I used to go when he was on Newhart, you know, oh, which was man. a fantastic yes. sitcom. <laughs> and I used to go, you know, Bob Newhart for God's sake. Yeah. Like that's huge. Yeah. And, um, I used to go to tapings of that show and hang out on the set a lot and watch yeah. him shoot Newhart. And it was just fun to meet everybody. And. I loved Bob Newhart back then. I still love Bob Newhart. He's so one of the funny. he's one of the funniest dudes on the history of the world. And uh, even his original show, the Bob Newhart show, yeah, uh, was is funny. Yes, yes. And you know, and I I didn't watch that show because I was like five when it was on, right? <laughs> right? Or, or younger. 
Uh, but I grew up and my dad always loved Suzanne Plachette and I didn't know why. And then when I finally saw, I was like, oh, now I know why. Oh, that's <laughs> <was right>. like, <laughs> she is amazing. <laughs> and, and then, so I guess apparently my dad had a type because he loved Suzanne Plachette. He loved <laughs> Joyce DeWitt from Three's Company. And I was like, short hair brunettes? Be cool. Yeah, okay, got it. Okay, got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, and Apple didn't far from the tree. I guess I, you know, I was like, oh, maybe. But then, you know, you know, TV show genius to do the end of New Heart and do a throwback to the yes. Bob Newhart. Yeah. Absolute genius. Yeah. Uh, I think probably the best ending of a huge show ever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, ever because you can't do that now like you would do it you're like you're just repeating what Newhart did yep yep <laughs> like you dropped it and broke the mold like no one can copy you on that right like, and yeah. how many people do that how, like it's it's the rare occasion that something is you do something so profound that everyone's like well that you can't touch that you can't no do you that. can't you can't do it again it's lightning it's you know it's like I, you're trying to make lightning strike in the same spot and that's what's awesome and that knows when you've done something iconic I think yeah. Uh, now, you know, there's another, uh, you know, shows end and they're usually weak. Um, yeah. you know, everybody thinks the end of The Sopranos was terrible. Right. And then like two years ago, I read an article about it and I was like, because I was never a huge Sopranos fan. Okay. You know, I was, oh my God, this is the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah. Uh, but then I read this article and a take on that last scene and I went, oh shit, <laughs> that's a fantastic take on this. I love that. And it was, I don't know if you, if you guys watch Sopranos or not. I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, at the end they're in the thing and everybody's like, Oh, someone's getting whacked. Mm -hmm. Right. Someone's getting whacked. Who's it going to be? Right. And then what is he, he walks up to the jukebox, whatever. And then just the show, it goes to black and the show ends. Yep. So no one knows. And everybody was pissed off. Yep. So I read this article. I can't remember the, the, the person that wrote its name, but his take was, you know, who got whacked? You did that's why it went to black while you were just watching something and just cut off oh. you're the one that got whacked oh i love and that. you never saw it coming oh i do like that <laughs> has anybody because, passed david chase and i i don't know and i think what it was was this he was talking about the ownership from the fandom of that show for sure leading up to that last sure. season yep. started yep. to get a little acidic yeah and they're like who's gonna get wet like they started getting bloodthirsty and that's what they liked about the show, not about the conflict from this guy and a family man right. and a mob boss. Right. Right. They just wanted the body count and they got set this bloodlust right. that they got so distracted and they were the one that got there and got walked up behind and shot in the back of the head. Yeah. And I was like, now I like The Sopranos. <laughs> <laughs> just because of this one journalist article. I, I love that. I wish I had created just the show to have that situation to right. whack the audience. Oh, yeah. Yeah it was a little kind of clap back to the the audience that had loved the show for what six seasons or whatever it was yeah, on, yeah, yeah. hundred seasons to start getting bitchy yes yeah. like what you don't get to do that just don't want like you don't own this is you don't own this people get just so proprietary it. it's unbelievable and uh and i love the fact that if this article I, that's my take on it that is the audience got whacked I yeah like that yeah. Um, that's that not, talking about breaking the fourth wall. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a little, it's a little meta, but killing the audience. <laughs> um, so to kind of, to kind of wrap things up. Uh, oh yeah. What were we doing here? Like what was yeah. happening? Like, what? Hey, I, actually, I warned you, didn't I? I warned <laughs> you. Like, <laughs> it's okay. but I'm glad my apologies <laughs> folks. Um, one thing that uh, I want to make sure that 
is conveyed to the people that are going to listen to this. Um, what do you, what is your hope with, with the documentary Wolfman's Got Nards? What is your hope that people are going to walk away with? Not just Monster Squad fans, but maybe somebody that's, that's going to watch this documentary just by circumstances uh, that, you know, they maybe wouldn't have otherwise and they watch this doc. What do you want them to take away from it? Well, I think really what is something that we had in our mind at first of how we wanted to approach what we actually showed is that something like a movie, it doesn't have to be Monster Squad, it could be Monster Squad, can impact you and and shape or change or influence your life. And it's okay to be be connected and tethered to something like that uh, if it affects you in a positive way. Hopefully it's not negative, but, uh, you know, and we, we, we tried to make a concerted effort to not to to have the the idea of this documentary transcend just monster squad quote unquote and you can fill in the blank of whatever your movie or your tv show or your book uh you know like something that impacted you uh it could have been an experience in your life whatever that that shaped you whatever it's just how something like cinema can impact you and shape your your mind or your brain or your your career or the way you view the world and that's okay um and just as long as you you know for that it's a positive and and then and that's that's a good thing and it's a discussion and you should reach out to other people and say what was yours and then they go what was yours and like oh maybe we have the same one and it's really just about connecting to other people and it kind of goes, you know, not to get so woo woo, but, you know, it's very interesting. It's, it's unfortunate in one respect, but cool in the other that the movie finally got released because it, it had such a delay actual, uh, you know, for a couple of reasons that it finally releases uh, during pandemic time where it only, right. you know, there's no theaters. Um, even though we had a great film festival run and actually did a 21 city Alamo city tour run with just the doc as sort of like a bring back celebration. Uh, When you watch the documentary, it's really about that feeling of that shared experience when you, when you either you're a kid or now when you go into a room and it's a darkened theater because the lights go down and you're in the shared experience with other people that you may or may not know. But in that time, you're all connected to this one experience. You're watching this movie. You're all doing the same thing unless you're some schmo on your cell phone and chomping on M&Ms and making noise. But really what's interesting is, you know, I've, you know, I always realized that, you know, movies, television, but definitely movies over the last hundred years uh, that we, we used to do that as, as human beings for thousands of years, we used to sit around the campfire with our village or our tribe and we would tell stories and we would tell our mythologies or we would learn life lessons around this, you know, kind of flickering light. And that's really all the movie theater is. It's just our new campfire. And so we all sit in a darkened space and look at a flickering light and tell stories. Yep. And I, you know, I think I want a little of that to come out of, of, of the, when people experience the documentary. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think you could have you could have said that any more beautifully than that. Um, before before we wrap wrap up, um, where can people see Wolfman's Got Nards? Where can they purchase it? Uh, and where can they find you on social media? Uh, let's start with uh, where they can get Wolfman's Got Nards. Uh, if you live in the U.S. and Canada, it is released right now on 
whatever VOD service du jour that you prefer, whether it's uh, iTunes or Dish Network or on demand for your cable, uh, you know, uh, Voodoo, Google Play, Fandango, Redbox, Digital, you know, a ton of those platforms. If you can't find it, just go to iTunes because <laughs> uh, it's there. And if you are a physical media collector or you like things to hold in your hand, you can order a Blu-ray on Amazon.com. Uh, this, it, it ends up, you know, it's, it's a, it's a great version. Uh, it comes in an actual Blu-ray case with a, you know, artwork and a, and a cover and everything, you know, it's like a real movie. Uh, and you know, you should order on amazon.com. If you live outside of the U S and Canada right now, uh, this is, you, you, this is a great timing for you guys. Cause you're the second kind of uh, second or third podcast in the last week that I've announced that we just signed our international sales agency oh, agreement. Great. With a company called Raven Banner, oh, which if you're a genre, you know some Raven Banner titles. Yeah. Um, I've known those guys for a while. Uh, we've had such a you know a, a great production and film festival and tour run, and then we went dormant for almost you know for a year and a half. And we had a distribution deal worldwide in the works, and we spent six months you know doing the paperwork and getting the movie ready, and then that deal actually didn't happen. So we had to start from scratch in April of last year. So that's why we didn't release until October in the US and Canada. And then we had to put together a separate international release. And we, you know, we ended up with Raven Banner who does awesome stuff, right? And so if you live internationally, uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks or months, you're getting announcements from me saying, hey, if you live in the UK or if you live in uh, Germany or in Mexico or in Australia, this is when you win and where you can get Wolfman's Got Nards. Uh, Up until then, you can follow the doc at the squad doc. Um, that's two D's in there at the squad doc on Instagram and Twitter, or you can go to the website squaddoc.com and get updates and, and social media feeds and read some articles, uh, you know, from our, of our pretty decent press coverage and some fan reviews. Uh, we're very fortunate. It, I just checked again yesterday. We're still a hundred percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, which is, uh, you know, and uh, hopefully that lasts for a long time. Um, one thing that we could use is more audience reviews because we don't have that many. And for some reason, that number seems low. So the shameless plug is like, go do a review on Rotten Tomatoes and make sure it's at least three tomatoes. And it goes up <laughs> so our, our audience meter can go up. It's really weird to have 100% critics and like 65 audience. You're like, what is happening here? Um, and I was like, there's a couple of negative reviews there and that's totally fine. You may not like it. Uh, just make sure you're reviewing the documentary and not the Monster Squad. And, um, and then there's actually a couple, there used to be some reviews on, on Rotten Tomatoes that weren't about either one of those. And they were dinging. So I was like, this is not happening. Uh, but, you know, personally, uh, I try to be as act. I'm not as active as some people and I'm more active than others on social media, but on Twitter, it's at Andre Gower. And on Instagram, it's at Andre Gower official. Cause there's some other unofficial Andre Gower. I don't know. And, uh, you know, hit me up, you know, post some pictures, add a story, tell us what you like about Monster Squad or, you know, if you have photos that we've met at some event, uh, you know, please let us know. I try, I try to be as active on my social media as I can. Uh, and I try to at least give a heart or a nice reply if anybody actually puts something out there. Um, and if you live somewhere near, uh, I don't know when you're dropping this episode, it, that's up to you, but um, I, I'll be doing an appearance uh, at the Mahoning Pennsylvania Drive-In Theater in the middle of April. 
So we're oh, getting, you know, okay. that season is getting ready to open. Mm -hmm. And if you've got some regional folks that, you know, spill over into Pennsylvania uh, and, uh, or if you're even in Toledo and want to drive to Eastern Pennsylvania, <laughs> we'll see you there. Uh, Cause it's just around the corner. It's not far. It's only four hours. But, th but this is awesome, you know, that we get to, uh, I love the drive-in and uh, oh, we, we get to kind of, you know, open the, in 2020 and enabled the drive-ins to kind of come back. Yeah. And I hope when we come out of this BS that the drive-ins will remain. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite things. I wrote my college, my senior college paper on the drive-in theater. Oh. And so it's always, it's always been yeah. something I liked ever yeah. since I used to go to my local one with my dad and watch movies in our big ass Ford. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, that, that, you know, you barely made it through a movie because that car was so big and comfortable. You just fell asleep, but yeah. I love the drive-in. I'm looking forward to going to Mahoning and, uh, I mean, seeing a ton of people, it's a two night event. And then maybe what that will spark is a bunch of other drive-in appearances during the summer. And now that we're yes. hopefully coming out of the shutdown and lockdown mode. Uh, and even if we don't, the drive-ins is actually a nice, cool, safe way to, you know, go experience movies on a big screen yeah. and, um, you know, interact with some of the people that get to make them. Yeah. And so that's what uh, we're looking forward to. Well, uh, Andre, I will speak on behalf of myself and my entire generation when I say you got you and the rest of the squad had a profound effect on all of us monster kids. Uh, you you were a uh, you reflected us on a movie screen, and that is that is invaluable to all of us. So. Uh, Wolfman's Gotten Ours, we can tell you officially, is a wonderful documentary. It is full of heart, and it is it is just, it's a touching movie about, it's a touching documentary about a, a wonderful movie and a wonderful fan base and legacy. So I hope this thing, I hope this thing keeps going for you guys, and I hope the, the much due success is coming your way. So, uh, well, I hope so as well. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I appreciate the connection and the fandom to Monster Squad and to us as the cast. Uh, you know, I'm just kind of, you know, fortunate enough to, you know, have been thought of to be cast in that role and be a part of something that turned into this very interesting dynamic that, you know, has a 35 year legacy so far. And, you know, most people say it's like, it's just getting started. I'm like, oh my gosh. So yeah. it's, uh, it might, you know, we might be, uh, you know, Jason Roxy may be pushing, pushing me around in a chair to go to an appearance to, to, to talk with their kids about the movie, uh, which, and you know what, if someone wants to talk about it, it means something to them and it's, and it's making other people connect in a positive way to other people then uh, who am I to uh, poo poo that I just, you know, that's, that's what it's really all about. And it's just been a fascinating kind of dynamic to be a part of and to experience. And that's really kind of why I wanted to make a documentary to try to express that understanding that this is a very unique and interesting experience to go through. Yes. Well, we will, uh, we will make sure that we're going to make sure that you guys have all the uh, connective social media stuff in the bio for this episode and, uh, and in the meantime, go find Wolfman's Got Nards wherever it's streaming or pick up the Blu-ray. It's totally worth having on your shelf. So uh, we'll talk to you guys all next week.